LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Neil MacDonald, who joins us to discuss some of the wonders and mysteries of megalithic culture. A megalith is a large stone that has been used to construct a structure or monument, either alone or together with other stones. Stonehenge is arguably the best-known megalithic site in the world. There are over 35,000 in Europe alone, located widely from Sweden to the Mediterranean. Their historic timeline extends from the Mesolithic and Neolithic Stone Age eras, uh, some of the earliest sites date from around 10,000 BC, right through to the Bronze Age. The megalithic tradition in general came to an end around 1200 BC. Megaliths were used for a variety of purposes ranging from boundary markers, reminders of past events, burial sites, to being part of the society's religion. Some also have various stellar and solar alignments. However, many questions about their origin and purpose remain unanswered, not least the methods of their construction. If the stones could speak, they could tell us much about humanity's history that is still obscure. Hello and welcome, Neil, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, hi, Greg. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Uh, today we're just going to be having a little bit of a uh, megalithic chat, because that's one of your areas of expertise. Before we get started, uh, for the benefit of listeners who don't know, just give them a little potted bio about your yourself and your work. Okay. Um, well, I, I come from uh, a northern English um, council estate, working class background, which was great. Um, through school, absolutely hated it, so kind of avoided that with every <laughs> every bit of judgment I possibly could, and worked as a psychiatric nurse for 14 years. Straight after school, that's where I got interested in the whole idea of um, the subconscious and the power of the the mind, all that sort of thing. Left, I went to university, got a degree. That must be like when I was thirty, early thirties. Then worked as a uh, financial advisor. I was very naive. I was I was really into economics, and I thought financial advisors were there to help people. <laughs> I um that didn't last that long. <laughs> I found out the truth of that pretty quick. Uh and then a little bit of time in property developing and then twenty years ago on the twenty eighth of February, last twenty eighth of uh, the last just gone, uh twenty years ago, I left work and I began doing tours to ancient mystical sites, megalithic tours, and I've loved every minute of it since. Now, I came across your work um, via a regular radio guest of mine, uh, Thomas Sheridan. Many of the listeners will be familiar with 
the shows that he and I have done together. And you and he, um, in recent uh, months, have been doing a, a series, a YouTube series called uh, Megalus and Mysteries. And I'd really recommend that to anybody listening if that sounds like your bag. So where did the the interest in, when, I, when we say Megalus here, we're all, we're all, all we're really talking about there is a large piece of stone, but people use yeah. Meg, Megalus as a kind of shorthand for all sorts of monuments and stone circles, monoliths, other structures from mostly the Neolithic period. But in general, what was it that captured your imagination about about that period in history? Where it really started was I had uh, an interest in the ancient mystery tradition uh, through mystery schools and things. So I'd studied that for many years, and I was a member of a group in Preston, and we the sort of group where you do talks every Friday night, that sort of thing. So I said, well, I'll organise uh, a tour to the Lake District to see the ancient sites. And I'd never actually seen any. This was all brand new to me. So I, I drove up. I got, I got a book. I got um, the Modern Antiquarian, Julian Cope's book, from Waterstones, which was recommended to him by the K Waterstones, which is where it all started. It's an excellent so book, I, that, isn't it? It really is excellent. It's such a beautiful book as well. It's the it's the Bible. If you're going to to start into Megalith, that absolutely wonderful book. And Julian goes into so, so much detail and and uh, poetry as well about the whole thing. He really brings it alive, puts his own emphasis on it. So yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely go for that if you if you're uh, starting out. And um, so I headed up to I headed up to the Lake District, and I think I went to Long Meg first, which is a huge stone circle. Uh, near Penrith, and I, I drove in, and I think I just, I was transformed, I, did, I just had to sit down and all these questions, you know, I, 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 it was a shock, really, it was a real eye-opener, so why, you know, when, who, <laughs> all these huge questions came came uh, flowing into me, and so I put the whole tour together, and I just haven't, I haven't stopped since, that was one experience 20 years ago, and I've and until last year, obviously, I've just been on the road and never stopped. For me, my interest, I think, started, um, I think I saw you know, just a documentary about, no, it was a documentary that about druids, and it had this connection with places like Stonehenge, which is quite spurious, really. There's, there isn't really, as I understand it, any real basis for that. But the point was that yeah. it still showed these megalithic sites in this program. And I was just fascinated because there was so much conjecture in the show about, this is back in the early eighties, um, about what the purpose of these sites might be. And many different, some of them were obvious, fairly practical, uh, purposes. Others were, you know, a complete mystery and they remain so. But in general, I found with history that when I was learning history at school and we were doing particular periods in, you know, Napoleonic wars or, you know, whatever it happened to be, I found it all very dry and, I mean, Everything that's in the past is kind of inherently interesting in a way. But for me, I found the periods of time about which we know the least to be most fascinating. It's almost that the less we know about a period of time, the more interesting it is to me. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely true, isn't it? And, and we, the period of time we're talking about here loosely, as I said, it's mostly the Neolithic. There are some megalithic sites dating prior to that time through into the Bronze Age. And although there are still one or two megalithic cultures that exist in the world even today, I think it's the Neolithic through into the Bronze Age, isn't it really? If people are wanting to get a handle 
on how this sits in their in the broader sweep of history. Yeah, the, these are the dates that you look at, sort of the Neolithic, sort of five, six thousand years ago. I, I mean, I'm not absolutely sure about the dates, to be honest. I think, you know, I, I, I'm a bit sceptical about it, but that that's the sort of authentic idea. So you're looking at the hunter-gatherers in the in the Mesolithic, and then in the, the Neolithic, or the New Stone Age, they started, they call it the, the Agricultural Revolution, and then, and then the, so they started building stone monuments, and that went, so that went to about 2000 to 1500 BC, which was the Bronze Age, through to the Iron Age. But what, what you say about school is uh, important because I mean, the bits of history I did see was it was kind of woolly mammoth, saber-toothed tiger, Romans. Yes. And, yeah, and, and, our, and our early ancestors, which are fascinating, didn't even get a look. No, no, you're absolutely right. There was no, um, I mean, I grew up in Ireland, albeit in the north, so that's the United Kingdom, but there was nothing about the history of these islands in, in these sorts of time periods. Uh, you know, it's almost like Britain only, in, in our history timelines, Britain only became interesting, according to our teachers, when the, when the Romans arrived. Yeah, it, it's that period. I think everything's look, has shone through the, the eyes of the church, isn't it, really? I mean, you can't have anything. The idea was that the Earth was built six thousand years ago, so you couldn't really have any anything of any importance seven thousand years ago because there was no Earth. And anything before the Church, which was kind of the Roman time, it isn't really worth looking at. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things there. One is, you know, the history being written by the victors, if you see what I mean. You know, so any culture that comes to dominate others gets to write history. And then there's also the, the, the act of writing in itself. And there have been many human cultures that haven't, for whatever reason, you know, before the development of writing, whatever it happens to be, they, they haven't recorded their own culture in a way that has, has survived. I mean, even, you know, Roman culture, we know a great deal about, but there's huge gaps even in that. I mean, as I understand it, in, as our knowledge of Roman music consists of like about one or two bars and that's it. So, you know, so there's huge gaps there. So there's, I understand, I alluded to this a few minutes ago, there are great periods of history about which we can say very little, but it's not like there's nothing to say. And there's still a lot that we can glean about the history of the British Isles in particular, what you and I are mostly concerned with, although, of course, you travel around Europe to other megalithic sites. But there's still a lot that can be said based on, you know, what has been left behind. Yeah, um, it's. I think travelling around the sites is. What about that? Yeah, travelling around the sites is the more you do it, the more you kind of build up a, a picture in your mind. Um, so when I started uh, travelling doing, and doing the tours, I didn't realise that the megalithic thing was a thing. If you see what I mean, because I, I went down to. Uh, Glastonbury to the megalithic, uh, megalithomania conference, and I just thought, oh, I didn't realise this was a huge kind of organisation around it. So I kind of went to, I went into it, sort of bare, if you know what I mean. And so what I've what I've ended up doing is picking up ideas about the culture, um, whether they're right or not, I don't know. But uh, and, and I and I see the British megaliths pretty much. It's sort of like a holy centre, like a, a place of pilgrimage 
because they differ so an, an island as well as as, as the island and um, and the and Britain as one sort of uh, pilgrimage centre because they're so much different than all the other all the other areas apart from northern France and Brittany, which I think was part of it. But they, they are different than the other megaliths on the other on the other uh, parts of Europe. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, it absolutely does. And um, I think we've got, am I correct in saying that also in the British Isles, we've got like the largest collection of the concentration of, of these sorts of sites anywhere in the world? Absolutely, yeah. And particularly over in the Republic of Ireland, because they, they haven't been built on a, to the same extent as we have. So we were, I think we've lost so much under sort of Manchester, Leeds, well, we're the, more, or less the, more of the West, really. But Manchester, Liverpool, all this sort of thing, and uh, I, I mean uh, the whole idea. I don't like to mention the the A word, but uh, the whole Atlantis thing. Uh, it, uh, in, it interests me, and I, I wonder whether the, it's a throwback to that sort of period, because we have got this massive, and they're not only individual sites; they all seem to be uh, to have processional waves sort of connected to them as if people would travel there if you see what I mean oh absolutely I think that's rather gives a lie to the idea that people didn't move around thousands of years ago we often we talk about in the medieval period and, and people wouldn't travel more than you know 20 miles from their village or whatever in a whole lifetime but clearly uh, there's evidence in high antiquity of people moving very large distances uh, by whatever means, sometimes uh, over land, sometimes by sea. Absolutely. I mean, we, we know pretty certain that there was Neolithic trade from around the Malta area up to the west, the western fringe of, of Britain. And uh, then you've got these huge, I mean, the Stonehenge, obviously, is the first one and with Durrington Walls. Uh, that's the thing that springs to mind, is it? That was obviously, it was definitely a place of pilgrimage because they know that there were certain animals slaughtered at certain times of the year, and then they would they would probably have then marched up down the processional way from uh, like Woodhenge to Stonehenge. But there are things in the north, um, like the Thornborough henges, where you've got three massive henges, which are pretty much aligned, pretty much definitely aligned on Orion's belt. Now, each one of those stone circles can hold 2,000 people, and there's about 20 miles of um, alignment of henges, most of which have gone, that ends up with the Devil's Arrows um, near, um, well, they're about 20 miles south between the rivers of Air and uh, the other one I can't remember. But that's, but that just shows that if that wasn't a few people and to get 6,000 people to... To, to pilgrimage to one particular site, that that shows that well, there must have been thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, and that that's that's a sort of a thing that gives me the idea that they would have come to these islands for a particular reason. Yeah, and when you consider what global populations were, um, you know, in the thousands of years BC, um, just vanishingly small compared to anything we could even imagine now. So if you had a gathering of several thousand people, 
that would probably, I don't know what that would be the equivalent of now. It would be like a gathering of several million, I suppose, in terms of, uh, you know, percentage. Yeah, so they must have, there must have been a huge pull, a hemogenetic pull to get people to, to, to make that journey. And it, so it must have been from, from mainland Europe. I mean, um, it would be the same thing happens in, in Brittany, but I think that was, obviously that was connected to, to, uh, Britain then. And there was one, there's one across in, near me, up in the Lake District, where there was a, a there was a stone circle, and there used to be a massive pilgrimage, um, avenue, like the one at Avebury, up to another site on a, on a hill. And that's pretty much all gone now, but, you see, these things keep, they're all over the place. Yeah. So, what you mentioned there a moment ago is, is worth just emphasizing that it's not that long ago, that the, the west of France, the northwest of France was connected to the southeast of England. Um, it was walkable, you know. It's a long time ago for you and I, but not that long ago in terms of, you know, geologic history. And, and you look at something, I, I remember being struck when I was reading about the, the stones and whatnot, the earthworks at Karnak, and I was absolutely blown away uh, by, oh, yeah. by the scale of that. And it did seem more to have more of a connection with, in some ways, with with the with similar features in what are now separate uh, British Isles. Yeah, I mean, yes, I, th- uh, I think it was eight thousand years ago, wasn't it, that the 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 last sort of mini ice age supposedly uh, disappeared or melted. And I think it was I can't remember if it was eight thousand years ago or eight thousand BC. I think it's eight thousand years ago. So that's when the the huge weight of glacial pressure on Scotland disappeared because the ice melted, which lifted the land up, the land mass up, and the, and that had the sort of the effect of lowering the land to the south. And that's when that's, that's when we got the English Channel was flooded. So it was actually connected up. The, and there's, there's some work I've just printed off the shelf now. Um, not long ago, I just can't see a name. My eyes are terrible. Can't see it. Actually, it was explaining. She's called Schultz Paulson, and she radio commentated um, massively around the Brittany area, and it, it more or less proved that the whole idea of the the people travelling and building the sites from the the south of Europe uh, was wrong because it, it pretty much started around the Karnak area. So that kind of puts, turns everything on its head. But I, I know what you mean about... I, mean, I remember travelling... I, I travelled around Britain for so long, and then when I went to... You kind of got an idea in your head of what's right. And then I went down to Karnak and just saw it, and I, it just blows your brain. You think, oh, my God, start again. Exactly. It's magnificent, magnificent isn't it? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, you mentioned the A word there a few moments ago, Atlantis, which I, I wouldn't be shy about because a lot of people just roll their eyes. But yeah. I, I think that even if there are, even if, if out of, you know, Greek scholars came a mythologized or even completely fictional account of something, I think it connects with, in some way, actual species memory and it may be connected with the the idea of the deluge because the flood myths are universal across the world 
uh, reflected, you know, reflected again in the idea of the biblical flood. So, and this is not, again, you can start to look at possible uh, reasons for this. And certainly the ending of an ice age, you're you're looking at massively increased sea levels um, globally. Mm -hmm. And that could have happened in a relatively short space of time. So you could have seen a lot of, you know, potentially tsunamis, uh, inundation of lands, lands being completely lost that are still underwater. I mean, uh, Doggerland off the west of Ireland, for example, mm. is sometimes connected with Atlantis myths. And I was recently reading, or rather I was reminded of the little known or talked about phenomenon in megalithic circles, which is the USO, uh, the unidentified sunken object. And there's, you know, we have met megalithic objects and sites that are, have been submerged now for thousands of years. Taking all of that together, uh, if you want to use the word Atlantis, fine. If you don't, but I still think there's something there. You know, there, there's a story to be told there, to be uncovered, uh, which we may never be able to do. But I don't think it's it's all made up. No, I, I don't either. I, I I I think that everything that is is kind of a myth now came from somewhere. Where I don't think things are just made up on the on the spot. Um, for it, like so, the for instance, Stampton. If you know the Stampton Drewstone Circles down near Bristol, they're called the Weddings. Now, why would you just make that up? You know, so and so. I, but I can imagine that maybe, and people still get handfasted there now. So it, you know, so it's like a tradition. Every 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 folklore must have started for some reason at some time. I was talking about the processional idea again. Um, I remember when we were brought up in Preston, where I am now, the, the local church, they had the the um, the, the, very, the uh, May Queen every year, and she she would go to the church and she would get a little ceremony and she'd become that for the year. And then they would, we would all sit on the back of lorries and we'd go for a drive round, and then we'd end up at, at the village hall. Now, to me, that's exactly the same thing as processional way between two ancient sites that could have been 6,000 years ago. Because everything starts at some point, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's a very common thing in many cultures around the world, the idea of a ceremonial procession from one point to another point. And some, somebody might say, oh, well, they're just going from A to B for a practical reason. Or maybe they're just taking a, someone's body from where they live to the place where they're going to be buried. But it's still a very common feature and not for all sorts of reasons. And it seems to be, it, it seems to be very important for some reason. And I guess it's, it's part, it's just part of a ceremony, isn't it really? You've got these amazing processional ways like the Camino, haven't you? They, they go for miles and miles. But I, I mean, but I think it's a real thing. I mean, I, I do it. I go down to the Cathar country every year, do it. Well, apart from last year, but, um, the Cathar country, you can fly into Carcassonne and you're there. But I, I like to take the minibus down. Uh, I want to drive all the way just because it gives me that feeling of pilgrimage. And you, you, you feel that when you've, when you've arrived there, you've put yourself through an experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've, got, I mean, I've, I've worked in a church in the past and, you know, at a certain time of the day, uh, let's say even song, you know, uh, silence falls, bells ring. Incense is lit, and the vergers and the clergy appear with their in their robes and with their banners, and you know it's all very solemn and grand, and you know, and they make their way along, and 
people stand respectfully in silence. <laughs> you know that yeah. you could just it's, you could. Sw- it's that, all part of making something a, an occasion, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know that I guess that could that we've been touching upon anyway. That could bring us on to the purpose of some of these sites. And as I mentioned at the top of the hour, some of them are clearly practical. Maybe they're graves. Uh, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're just monuments marking a special spot. But it's, it's fascinating to me how discussion, and no doubt this has went on for a century before I was even born. But when I first got interested in megalithic culture and societies, how the discussion, the, the discussion about the purpose of many of these sites really hasn't changed in, in the last few decades. You know, the, I think the problem with a lot, of, which not only in in, in archaeology, I think it's in every subject, that you, the, you get a, you get an idea, and certain professor will make, um, will do his PhD, he'll get his job, he'll get a a, a job in a uh, in a, a a museum, and he'll build his huge career. So the the chance of actually changing it whilst he's alive. It is impossible, isn't it? Because you're stuck with that idea. When I, I when I did the Malta book, I, I found I found lots of um, they basically based the whole um, dating of the of the of the whole dating on about two or three radiocarbon dates, and we all and we know that they can be just find a bit of um, organic material that might have been put there five thousand years after. After the the, the um, I mean, somebody finds a coke can there, now, you know, if they find it in hundred years, they're not going to say it was built in two thousand and twenty. So, it, so it's it's like you can only these ideas get fixed, and you can't move on until they say that history's only or prehistory's only moved on with the death of that of a professor. So it, the ideas are stuck. Um, we talked about the church and. Uh, Six thousand, um, six thousand years old. Now you've got Gulgeki Tepe in, in, um, um, what's the name of the place? But uh, that's the the site they found in uh, Turkey. That uh, now you're looking at nine thousand BC or even uh, twelve thousand BC. So that just puts a light of the whole thing. So it, the whole, I think, the whole dating thing is is up for grabs. It started. Because of the because of this idea of the church, but nobody will ever question it because you're taught at university, you become an archaeologist, and you just carry the myth on. Yeah, Egyptology is notorious for that kind of uh, blinkered thinking and tenured professors and vested interests mm. and research grants and all. That's probably the worst area of it. But you're talking again about dating, and I really agree with you on that. Um, as a, you know, as a, just a, a non-expert, but you're probably familiar with some of the work of Graham Hancock. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, when he posts online, he's got a little series that he'll regularly do, and it starts out with uh, stuff. It, basically, if it was called anything, you could call it "stuff just keeps getting older." So, mm. Graham Hancock, social media stuff just keeps getting older, and they, he links to a new story or a new bit of research which is revising the dating of these things. Yeah, I think he's got a very good point. I think we've been conservative about this, the dating for a long time, and about the abilities of our uh, those who came before us. Uh, Gobekli Tepe being a perfect example. You know, when I first read about it, it was nine thousand years, and then yeah, I've read stuff as well. 
now taking it to 12,000 BC, mm -hmm. uh, which is staggering. And as Hancock has pointed out, we're told that there's hunter-gatherers who built this stuff. Well, maybe that is how they lived. You know, maybe they did roam around um, picking berries and and killing a wild boar here and there. But the fact is that whatever they were, whatever they were eating or whatever they were wearing, somehow that structures like this got built. And if people are not familiar with Gobekli Tepe, you know, just Google it and have a look. It's a massive uh, series of sites, I suppose. Um, absolutely incredible. It is amazing, and the, and the, the, they had the logistics in position. Uh, just shooting up to uh, Orkney, where they are, I used to be absolutely amazed about the Ring of Brodger because they, they think because the, the, it was a huge stone circle, massive, beautiful stone circle, and there's a little hinge around it. But the hinge is actually carved out of the solid bedrock. Now. I used to be amazed that they, they would have the logistics and the manpower and everything in position to be able to, to be able to put that time into a project so massive. Yet since then, we, we found about, we, they've discovered the, um, the, the Ness of Brodga, which is, it's like a little city underneath, underneath the, uh, it's just basically underneath the, the grass, about four or five football pitches big the thing it's going to take a couple of hundred years to dig down so so there must have been a lot of people with enough food water um place enough places uh, settlements to live in all that must have been taken care of yeah because it's i find it hard to credit that you would have people basically sleeping in a cave or maybe if they were living in Turkey, sleeping under a tree if it was nice and warm, and then getting up in the, you know, having a few berries and getting up in the morning and excavating, you know, 100 ton plus blocks of solid stone and all these intricate carvings and doing what even today, if it could be done, would take decades. It doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, it, it just doesn't make any. It... Just looking at it with common sense, it, it doesn't make any, it doesn't seem right. I mean, it, but if they were hunter-gatherers, they wouldn't have enough time to build a stone city. Would you do it at the weekends? You know, it just wouldn't work like that, would it? No, and you, you have to move if you're hunter-gatherers because, you know, obviously they didn't, ex the whole point, they lived in a very sustainable way. You know, they didn't exhaust resources, but they tended to need to keep moving. Because, you know, that one of the things that agriculture allowed human societies to do was to remain in place, uh, to, be, to become static and, to, you know, to construct settlements. Hunter-gatherers hunter were on the move. Uh, and that goes against, that militates against achieving something monolithic, you know, in one location. Yeah, it just can't be, it just can't be right. And then if they did shoot off on pilgrimages at other times, I mean, I would imagine that and then they buried Gluglaki Tepe as well, didn't they? Yes, that, that's the, one of the most fascinating things about it. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across the work of um, Robert Schock. Uh, yeah, he, he's the geologist who has, has attracted controversy by his own redating of the Great Sphinx in Egypt to be much, mm. much, much older than we believe it to yeah. be. But it was in one of his books uh, that I first discovered about Gobekli Tepe being buried. Now, what that was all about, it was something I was going to get onto later, actually. But, you know, we're here now. We might as well uh, get to it. 
he speculated that the reason for this was to uh, protect the site yeah. uh, for the future. It's like we cannot use this. It's basically like you would mothball an office block. It was like mm-hmm. we're going to bury the site to protect it for the future, and there's a reason why we can't use it. Now, it's not we've grown bored with it. It's not like putting a, a Christmas present into the back of the wardrobe, you know, because you're bored with it. And the speculation was that something there was some threat to the site, some threat to humans, some threat to the planet. Something caused them to do this. There's a lot of... <clears throat> this is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, Malta, again, the, the, the structures, the... I don't know if you've seen the, the temples on Malta, but they're, 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 there's nothing like them on the planet. <clears throat> and they were pretty much earlier than, well, they were dated earlier than our stone circles, obviously not as far back as Kuzakitepe, but maybe 8,000 years old. And these are really sophisticated buildings that were built onto the bedrock. They were, they were, because, the, because Malta's a rock, and not, there's not really any soil. You couldn't really dig down. So they built these amazing structures just to stand on the top of the of the actual bedrock. Now, they were there for a thousand years, and then suddenly gone. Everybody just dis- disappeared. There's no sign that, why they went. There's, not, there's all the, the-, the theories, but no theories seem to make any real sense. And then, again, we'll talk about Orkney. The same thing about 2500 BC. Everybody's disappeared. So why why did this happen? Why did uh, why did it happen at Lucky Tepe? It's it's a mystery that we don't have the answer to at all. Really. Unless it, unless there was some huge, I don't know, some sort of deluge of of water. But could you you would you have enough water? Well, there's only a certain amount of water on the planet, so it wouldn't stretch from Orkney down to Turkey and it's one of those mysteries that I don't think we'll ever we'll ever answer unless you've got any ideas that concludes part one of our interview part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com legalizefreedom.com